gospel has already been read for your hearing. Let me just underscore a particular verse that we already heard from my dear professor. Jesus said, why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See that it's I. Touch me. Touch them. Ghosts don't have flesh and blood or scars like I do. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I want to speak for a few moments this morning from the scars of success. The scars of success. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, I need your help. Amen. The scars of success. My friends, one of the more beautiful yet befuddling beliefs of the Christian faith is found in the doctrine of the incarnation. This belief that Jesus was God, but yet a man. That Jesus was passionately human, yet no less divine. It's a beautiful belief because it serves as a point of divine human connection. A loving God that identifies fully with a fallen humanity. For Jesus is God's love made manifest as God came to walk in the garden with us. I like the way Pope Francis says it. He said, if you look at God's ID card, you'll see his name is Mercy. But though it's a beautiful belief, nevertheless, the incarnation is equally a befuddling belief. It's difficult to wrap our minds around the human nature of Jesus. If this is your issue, you're not alone. For ever since the Council of Nicaea in 325 Common Era, church theologians came really then more to an agreement than a resolution about what it meant for Jesus to be both human and to be God. This is indeed a difficult proposition to reconcile. And if we're honest with ourselves today, we must admit that in most Christian communities, this theological uncertainty concerning what it means is still prevalent. Think about the ways that we continue to teach Jesus in our churches, the way we most often teach Jesus in Sunday school. Or consider the most prominent and prevalent depictions of Jesus in popular culture. For it's true that most ordinary Americans view Jesus not as a Palestinian Jew put to death for insurrection. But rather they view Jesus as some sort of comic book hero. Jesus came to earth 
with powers beyond those of mortal men. He disguised himself as a mild-mannered teacher. And like Clark Kent, he fumbled and bumbled around for 33 years. Then he faced defeat by a kryptonite cross. Then Jesus stepped into the phone booth of an empty tomb, changes into his Easter suit, and leaps out into heaven in a single bound. Never once did he flirt with Lois Lane. <laughs> well, I heard somewhere that it's easier to worship a supernatural savior than it is to accept the moral challenge of a living prophet. And maybe this speaks to much of our discomfort and much of our disinclination toward considering what it means that to say that Jesus was actually a man. But despite our reservations, despite our reluctance to deal with the implications of Jesus' humanity, there are several passages in the Gospels that set the implications and the involvement of Jesus' humanity front and center right before us. One of them is found today in the Gospel lesson. Luke's account of the post-resurrection Jesus Luke's account of this appearance underscores a very important point about Jesus' life and about the teachings of the kingdom of God. For in both his life and in his resurrection, we learn that victory and defeat, we learn that winners and losers, we learn that success and that failure, that these things are not always as easy to identify as some may think. Like all of the teachings and the parables, Jesus flips the conventional and inverts the otherwise acceptable. That's why so-called winners become losers. And those that seem at the lowest in God's kingdom are lifted up to the highest. This is why. This is why, my friends, I appreciate the author presenting Jesus in the way that he does in this particular passage of Luke. For when the disciples are standing scared and terrified, when the disciples assume they're looking at a mere apparition or suffering a hallucination, Jesus does not recall the specifics from their past. Nor does Jesus elaborate on the meaning of his own sermons to them. But rather, Jesus gives them a visual example. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Jesus points them to the scars of a death sentence. Now, those not familiar with Jesus' teachings may find this to be a curious request from the Savior. For here we have an interesting command from a resurrected Lord who purports to signify the power and the glory of Almighty God. This is a telling illustration for someone whose followers would crown him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The man, the man that has the capacity to anesthetize the sting of death and overcome the inevitable victory of the grave. What does he do? He elects to model the marks of misery and show off the scars of his suffering. And I want to suggest this morning, 
I want to suggest today that the remaining scars on a resurrected Christ reveal an important point about the nature of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. God's power and glory is demonstrated by Jesus' willingness to identify with humanity at the most basic and universal level. Jesus identifies with our fragility. He identifies with our vulnerability. Think about it. What does it mean for Jesus to authenticate his presence among his followers in this manner? Of all the ways that Jesus could have certified his identity and verified his authority, he chose to share his scars. When the disciples froze in fear and fascination, Jesus could have conjured up a cherubic choir to serenade him with the psalms of exaltation. But no, he shows them the holes where rusty nails penetrated his wrists. When the disciples, when they doubted his presence, Jesus could have made a fingerprint in the sand. And when you read his fingerprint, it would have said, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word came down and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. But no, Jesus didn't do that. But rather, he pulled up his tunic to re reveal the disfigured ankles of death row. The disciples... They're standing before Jesus in fear and trembling. The disciples, they have not resigned to what Kierkegaard refers to as an infinite and even absurd leap of faith. For they need to wrap their minds around some empirical evidence. And it's in this context that Jesus uses the injustice of false imprisonment and the injuries of crucifixion as his form of authentication. Jesus doesn't mask the remaining marks of this horrific event, nor is he ashamed of what his wounds culturally signify. Look at my hands. As often is the case in the gospel narratives, Jesus, he's one step ahead of his disciples. They're searching for a sign of recognition. Prove to us, Jesus, that you're the one. Jesus, however, he offers a sign of identification. Look at my scars and know that I'm one with you. For is there any other common denominator of the human condition that cuts across all sectors of society than the prevalence of pain? Hurt, disappointment, anxiety, insecurity, the prevalence of your scars, of my scars. Brothers and sisters, we all bear the scars that are laden with the pains of the past. Some scars like Jesus's were a result of injustice. The nails of sexism, homophobia, and classism, racism have left deep wounds, injured some of our psyche. Or what is more, for some of us, we might be more like Pilate. We've lived at the mercy of our own prejudices and at the behest of our own bigotries for so long. 
that too many of us now are burdened by the scars of our own xenophobias. Look at our hands. There's others of us in here that we're scarred by the nails of violence and abuse. It could be physical, it could be sexual, it could be emotional, it could even be institutional. That's why many of us can come here and we can look good, we can smell good, we can seem like we've got it all together. But under our fancy clothes, under our lofty positions and titles remain the scars of tragic moments that we've endured and the insecurities that are exacerbated, not alleviated, by the markers of our so-called success. We walk around trying to cover it up, hoping that somebody won't declare he, she doesn't have on any, any clothes. And look at their scars. But I'm here to tell somebody, the more that you and I conceal our scars, the more we're anxious about them, the more prominent they're going to become. Look at our feet. But the good news, my friends, the good news this Easter Sunday morning is that you and I do not need to look past one another's wounds, nor do we need to deny one another's imperfections. God doesn't require us to conceal our scars. Jesus tells his disciples, behold my hands, behold my feet, look at them, for scars are nothing more than testaments to the obstacles that we've overcome and the trials that you and I have transcended. Now I understand, my friends, that we live in a forward-thinking culture that's animated by an antsy temperament and it's consumed with all things tomorrow. For so many of us, we think the past is irrelevant. And often for some of us, anyone who referenced the past, other than a way as to justify our current status quo, we're often viewed as a cynical malcontent. I can imagine that if Jesus was in our context today, showing off his scars, I can imagine somebody saying to him, come on Jesus, you're playing the victim. You've resurrected. That crucifixion thing happened in the past. Get over it, Jesus. Yet I'm here to tell somebody that's a dangerous approach to the past. In the words of William Faulkner, the past is never dead. As a matter of fact, it's not even the past. Or as I heard somewhere else, it's the ignorance of the past that invites our despairing in the present. This is true at institutional and at individual levels. For it's only when you and I acknowledge the scars of the past that we can celebrate the trials that we've overcome. Here at Harvard, here at our beloved institution, we are an institution that's covered with the scars of injustice. Less than 100 years ago, Secret court systems expelled young men suspected of being gay in the college. Administrators restricted the number of Jewish students who could attend. And this administration, under Lawrence Savitt Law, barred the few African-American men who were on campus from living in the freshman dorms in the college. 
But it's only when you and I name the scars of homophobia. It's only when we name the scars of anti-Semitism. It's only when we name the scars of anti-black racism that we can truly appreciate the LBGTQ community on this campus, that we can truly appreciate the contributions of our Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's only then that we can truly appreciate the brilliance of scholars like William Julius Wilson. As a matter of fact, this whole row. <laughs> Something else. Something else acknowledging the scars of our past forces us to confess our own moral vulnerabilities. For though God may have raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus' scars testify to the fact and testify to his disciples that you too may have some dangerous and difficult days ahead. Behold my hands and my feet. He was possibly saying to them, don't think that you're immune to evil and injustice. Don't think that you'll make it through life unscathed. Don't think that you won't have scars either of being hung up on your cross yourself or scars from you being in the crowd hollering, give us Barabbas. Jesus' scars serve and remind us that though rebuked and scorned, we know why on Easter Sunday morning that we can be reborn. Will we have doubts and disappointments? Yes. Will you and I endure scars in life? Absolutely. But it's then that we're able to look at those scars and we're able to sing even louder with the hymnologist. He abides in me. He gives me victory. Why? Because God never fails. Just keep the faith. Never cease to pray. Just walk up right morning, noonday, and light. Night, he'll be there, he'll be there. There's no need to worry because God never fails. Oh, my brothers and sisters, as I prepare to take my seat this morning, I recently read of a woman's account of her shame concerning her own scars. This woman, she's a stage three ovarian cancer survivor. She's living with scars from the bottom of her navel to the middle of her chest and they spread out along her ribs. This woman says that she was long ashamed to reveal to the world what appeared to be the deformity of her belly. Yet she says one day she was getting dressed for yoga and she looked at herself in the mirror. And when she looked at herself, her mind began to wander back and she recalled the five pound tumor that was removed. She thought about the other over 50 subsequent tumors that had to be taken out of her body. She thought about having to endure an early hysterectomy, how she endured a life-threatening infection. And then she remained connected to a vacuum for another six weeks. And after standing in the mirror and looking at all of her scars, and she recalled that all that she endured in the name of healing, she began to see her scars for what they really were, marks of beauty. For in fact, she now flaunts her scars. As she put it, my scars tell an incredible story of hope, courage, the power of prayer, the support of family and friends, and an amazing medical staff. For those scars signify 
that anything is possible and that there's beauty in imperfection. I believe, my friends, that that's a word for many of us on this Easter Sunday morning. Whatever your scars may be, however deep and however long they are, look at your scars as a testament to the fact that you're still here, you've overcome, and that you can still have hope that God never fails. So I want you to look at your scars as you leave this place. Behold Jesus' scarred hands. Behold his feet. And then give God the glory in knowing that your scars are physical signs that you were stronger than whatever it was that tried to kill you. But Easter is a reminder that the cross of Friday, the crucifixion and death and misery of Friday will always give way to new life on Sunday morning. Let the church say amen.